Thanks so much. Always look forward to being with you guys. This is actually uh, the only second time that I've been out to speak in public since the end of February. And um, so I was in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, the great church there called The Gate. And um, it was my first time there, and they seem to have survived okay. <laughs> I haven't had any reports that have indicated otherwise. Uh, I, I know I've said this in the past, and sometimes I'm sure it sounds like a, a mutual admiration society, but uh, Josh, Elizabeth, their entire family, they hold a very special place in our hearts, for sure. Um, I'm not sure whether or not in all the years that I've been coming here, my wife has ever been with me. Do you recall? Um, she does exist. Okay, all right. Yeah, we celebrated 42 years of marriage a couple weeks ago. self-absorbed, but I'll just tell you that one of the reasons why she was unable to travel with me right now was about three weeks ago, uh, she suffered a detached retina uh, in her left eye and had to undergo surgery, and right now her vision is significantly impaired, and, um, uh, but, you know, I have seen the faithfulness of the Lord so many, many times over the years. And I'm sure you resonate with that as well. Um, we, we know that we're in a very difficult time on so many different levels. And I think it really is important for us now more than ever before to focus our attention with great intention on the Lord. And that probably sounds rather lame to a lot of people, but not to me. Not at all. I, I did not know about the earthquake that took place. Um, I think the epicenter was in Sparta, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, my wife uh, texted me and asked me if I felt it last night. I was staying overnight in the Rock Hill area, and I told her no. Um, it probably the reason why it probably didn't awaken me if the uh, reverberations from that epicenter reached that far was because I'm a veteran of earthquakes. Um, in 2011, I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, and I'll just say this very quickly and move on. In 2011, I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, and uh, they had a, a significant earthquake there just a few months prior to my arrival. And so I came into the central business district where I was staying, um, spent the night. The next morning, I was taken out of the city to speak to a group of probably 60 or 70 pastors from all over New Zealand. And just as they were about to introduce me, a uh, six, I believe it was a 6.3 earthquake struck. And I witnessed the floor literally rolling, and the walls of this metal building were gyrating, and the ceiling tiles were falling. And I thought, because this was my first, I mean, I've, I've been in small earthquakes with nothing of this magnitude. I thought, well, this meeting is over. And uh, as soon as it subsided, the gentleman that was hosting the meeting went ahead and introduced me. I was, you know, I'm seldom at a loss for words. But I was in that very moment. And the only thing that could come to mind is this well-worn passage of Scripture that we've heard quoted almost until, you know, it just slides right off of us like Teflon. It was Hebrews chapter 12 that everything that can be shaken will be shaken, so that only those things that cannot be shaken will remain and will be given an unshakable kingdom. And I said that, and as soon as that came out of my mouth, there was another aftershock. Everybody hit the deck. Um, I will, you know, compress the story a little bit and tell you that when I made my way back into the city to retrieve my luggage and my laptop, all these essentials, I... I witnessed these huge fissures in the pavement where something called liquefaction was oozing up out of the ground. I watched people walking out of the city almost in a zombie state of mind, uh, disheveled and uh, disillusioned. And when I finally got to the place where I was staying, the 
one side of the bed and breakfast was totally exposed. You could see into it. And so I was able to get out of there. A lot of people on the plane coming home a few days later, uh, they weren't able to retrieve their luggage. They had to go home and just close on their back. And um, so that's quite an experience. Um, I've, I've lived a very rich life. I've been through earthquakes and several hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, but I'm still here. Right? Yeah. And so I, I, my mind really began to gravitate toward possibly talking about um, the significance of earthquakes and certainly not in the sense, the fatalistic sense that we hear it sometimes from some of the pop theologians of our time that are constantly, you know, alerting us that the sky is falling. Not, not in that sense. But uh, maybe just something you might want to do um, following the meeting if you're so inclined. Uh, whenever earthquakes took place in the scripture, these there were always seismic shifts that took place. Uh, they were not random in nature. They had a prophetic implication yes. to them. Yes. And so I think sometimes we fixate on the calamity, uh, the cataclysmic, and we don't realize that this is really a catalyst. That this is, a, this is maybe the earth itself, as Romans says, is groaning yes. and in travail. Yes. And uh, it is not just in that state because it's getting ready in some way to uh, expel us or to vomit us out, pardon the graphic language. But I really think it has something to do with us coming into alignment with what is happening foundationally because you know that when tectonic plates shift, which, is, which causes these earthquakes, that it reveals something referred to as fault lines. Which has always been interesting to me that in the geological community they call it fault lines. Which simply means or implies that there's something at a subterranean level, something really, really, really deep beneath us that is faulty in nature. And so I see that whenever there is something of an earthquake that takes place in my life, whether it's emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever, that it is really a good thing because what is happening is that he is really revealing those things that might possibly be faulty in my own foundation that cannot support what it is he wants to build on. Does that make sense to you all? So that's not what I came to talk to you about. Um, but I hear so many things, as I'm sure you do, almost ad nauseum when people around me and I get calls almost every week that are inquiring about my particular opinion on where is all this headed, what are things going to look like in the aftermath, and how do we distinguish our state presently from our fate? And uh, the other question that is just constantly cycling right now is when will we return to normal? To which I say maybe Maybe the way we were was never the way we were supposed to be at all. Now that might be a, a little troubling to some, your family, your job, your church, none of it, I, don't, I believe, will ever look like it used to look. If we're waiting on a reset, and I don't want for that to have a foreboding tone to it, if you're waiting on a reset, you may be waiting a long time. Because I believe that our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. Maybe I should announce to you the topic I want to talk to you about. It is it's probably going to sound initially rather lofty or almost complex in nature, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. I want to talk to you about an apocalyptic imagination. Maybe we all try to say that together. Apocalyptic Imagination. Again, that's not intended to sound lofty or complex in nature. First of all, the word apocalypse, as many of you are already aware of, is one of the most misused and abused words in the church culture and in the broader culture as well. Because when you hear it in the secular world, apocalyptic, you know, this is a word that is woven into a lot of the screenplays and the movies that we watch these days. 
what that does is that the inference is that this is something that is looming on the horizon. This harbinger that is looming on the horizon that is really signaling the end of the world as we know it. Are we on the same page so far? And so it has a very negative connotation when in reality, when we go back to the ancient text, we know that the word apocalyptic or apocalypso in the Greek does not mean that at all. It really has to do with an unveiling. It has to do with disclosing something that probably was already there, but we were unable to sense it, to see it, to perceive it. So again, our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. I believe God consciousness makes it possible to implement anything and everything. God consciousness is so important right now because the media and the dominant narrative that we all are caught in, I mean, we are almost drowning in a tsunami, aren't we, of negativity. If you're hard pressed to find anything that is imaginative in nature. Everything has a tone of futility to it, doesn't it? And I want to I say this without fear of contradiction, and some would accuse me of being a conspiracy theorist. I've been, I've been accused of worse, so get along. Okay? But I will tell you this, the spirit of the age and the dominant narrative that is at play right now is a script that is being written every night when you go to bed so that when you get up in the morning, they have, with great intention, decided what they want you to pay attention to. And with the gross misinformation, I mean, how many of you, how many of you find yourself sometimes having great difficulty in finding your equilibrium mentally and emotionally? Uh, did you understand the question? Do you, do you find yourself trying, you know, you're trying to get grounded, you're trying to find some equilibrium, but it seems like that everything that is supposed to give me a clear indication of what the world is really like is so confusing and so convoluted in nature. You see, in the midst of this kind of environment, it is the vocation of the prophet. This is the words of the prolific author Walter Brueggemann. And he pro his writings probably wouldn't interest most of you, but I'm a nerd, so anyway. He said, it's the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination. I love that. The ministry of imagination to keep on conjuring and proposing future alternatives to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. So while we're waiting on things to return, we might be missing what's right in front of us. I think that must have been what Jesus was implying when he was talking about the, the enlightenment of our consciousness when he says in Matthew chapter 6, your eyes are the windows of your body, right? Yes. Or if your eye be single, it will be filled with light. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and with wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. Is that really a possibility? In today's present environment, I believe that it is. You know, every generation that has preceded us has convinced themselves because they, are, they have this over sense of self-importance, they have convinced themselves that they are a terminal generation. If you read history, you'll discover that. I mean, this has been true forever. You know, in the 20s, whenever the stock market crashed, I don't know how, you know, how well read you are on that particular area of history, but they were convinced that they were the terminal generation. And so what makes us special? What makes us new? Really, what makes us new? Why is it that we are convinced that we are the ones upon whom the ends of the world have come? And I'm just going to go ahead and meddle as much as I possibly can here this morning. Uh, without, you know, without fear of reprisal. While we're in the middle of a crisis, our unbelief insists on total knowing. It's in the middle, or in the middles, that extremes clash, where ambiguity 
restlessly rules. When are we going to go back to normal? I'm not convinced that we will. Because I believe that when we reach the end of what we know, and I'm getting there quick, when we reach the end of what we know, there is where we really find God. We've had a certain orientation for a long time, haven't we? Almost to the degree that we've been on autopilot. But have you ever noticed that there are patterns? If you, if you read the scripture contemplatively, you'll see that there's an orientation which is followed by disorientation that leads to a reorientation. And I don't want that just to be some clever phrase, but it's true. Think about it. Think about it in your own personal experience, not just what's going on in our particular country. You do see these patterns, don't you, where you have a certain orientation and something disruptive happens that causes disorientation. And the purpose of that is to reorient you for the next thing. Wow. Oddly enough, oddly enough, when I discovered the source of this, I've heard it for years. <laughs> Some of you are going to chuckle at this, I think. Oddly enough, it was Marilyn Monroe that said, some things have to fall apart so that other things can come together. I didn't realize that she was that cerebral, quite honest. But, I mean, that makes so much sense to me. That's so counterintuitive to us, but some of the things that are falling apart right now, and we're desperately trying to keep it together, maybe that's not what he intended at all. I mean, look at how many times in the scriptures where there were things that were well-established that seemed to be uh, permanent, yes. only to find them to totally implode. We, right now, I think, at least for me personally, I think that I'm, I'm in this whole daily lesson of learning to let go. Just learning to let go. To realize, you know, that the song that we sang earlier uh, will, you know, it, it feels really good in here, doesn't it? Yeah. He's a way maker. And I'm, you know, I, I lean into that in a big way, but I'm telling you, you're going to find that out on a daily basis. You're going to find that out, at least I'm finding that out. See, all, all forms of fear to me have to do, uh, has been caused by too much future. Too, too much future and not enough presence. Yeah. Would anybody agree with me that worry has a way of hijacking and shrinking our imagination? I mean, you use your imagination all the time, don't you? You might as well use it as God originally intended it. Prophet, though. I, I'm saying these things because I do have a method to my madness. What I'm getting ready to lead you to. The prophets. Not maybe what we have classified as prophets in the past. Models and embodies a new way of thinking. And being that allows us a larger way to live. So with that said, I finally stumbled my way to my text. And it's found in Revelation chapter 4. This is the reason why I chose to talk to you about an apocalyptic imagination. And if there's anything that we need right now, more than ever before, it is to live imaginatively rather than allowing ourselves to be held hostage by negativity. Yes. And there'd be some that would say, well, you're not being realistic. There'd be some that say that that, that is just really idealistic in nature. But how many times do you see this played out throughout the scripture, throughout, throughout the biblical narrative, you see where things seem to be so dismal and so hopeful, uh, hopeless 
And then suddenly what happens is that there is a voice of reason that we would call a prophet that emerges. And most of the time, they are considered to be absolute lunatics. And it is not until after they are dead that we realize that they were right. Am I talking to the right people? In Revelation chapter 4, and I know that I don't have to do a, a lot of summary here because of the way that you have been taught about this apocalyptic literature because that's what the word revelation means. It means to unveil or it is apocalypse. It means to unveil or to disclose or just really to help us to see something that has been hidden in plain sight and we just weren't able to see it. And the reason being is because we don't realize that what we focus on, what we obsess about, always determines what we miss. I mean, that's the reason why that Paul would say, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. What God has in store for them that love him, but he has what? Revealed it. There's the word again. It's the same word. He has revealed it, disclosed it. How? By his spirit. See, far too long. We have fell victim to believing what we see rather than seeing what we believe. And this is essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying. So, before I get to Revelation chapter 4, uh, several verses that I want to read to you if you have the tolerance for it this morning. Um, which I was told when I walked to the platform and uh, Josh greeted me that... There was no time clock, which is really a dangerous thing to say, some, say to someone like me, quite honestly. But before we read Revelation chapter 4, let's, let's get a little context here. I, I, I don't want to elaborate too much on this, even though I, I could. I just want to get to the point. Just cut to the chase. That's what you ought to be telling me to do. Cut to the chase. The context of this revelation that John receives is in an, on an island, the isle called Patmos. He is in exile there because he is essentially public enemy number one. Maybe Paul rivals him somewhat. He's a political prisoner who has been sent to this island that is the equivalent of the first century, uh, the first century equivalent of Alcatraz. Remember Alcatraz off the coast of San Francisco where they would send years ago before it was closed down the most incorrigible criminals. And they put them out there because there was almost no possibility of escape. And this is where John finds himself. John is the one who is considered of the inner three, the Trinity, the Peter, James, and John. He is the one that is described as, as being always leaning upon the breast of Jesus. This is the imagery that we have in the scripture and is portrayed also in religious art. He, whenever you see John, it seems like that he is looking for that place on the bosom of Jesus, to press his ear against the bosom of Jesus. And my feeling about that is very possibly that even though John who he also refers to himself nine different times in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It almost sounds like false humility when in reality, in referring to himself in third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved, I think what he was really trying to imply and help us to understand is that he was the one that did not just listen to the words that fell, the gracious words full of grace and wisdom and truth that fell from the lips of Jesus, but he also wanted to hear what resonated in the heart of Jesus because he says in John chapter 1 that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father. So if I am going to trace back the origin of God's ultimate intention, then maybe I ought to be listening to his heart reverberating and that might reveal to me what this Christ is all about. Are you with me, son? That's the reason why over and over he says in the first two chapters, he that hath an ear, he that hath an ear, not he that has ears, but he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Singularity. Solidarity. And so John, uh, they had already attempted, if you're a student of, of uh, Josephus, this first century historian, you, you realize this man, they had tried to wipe him out, but unfortunately they were unable to do so. 
According to Josephus' account, they even tried to boil him in oil, and he was not born. And so, and so they decide to put him out on this godforsaken island with all these other incorrigible prisoners in hope maybe that he will either be murdered by one of his inmates or maybe he will die of sunstroke as he's out there beating rock on this terrible, at this terrible place. Back on the mainland, there are seven churches that he had strategic and intimate relationship with that he writes about in chapters two and three. Which by the way, in chapter one, he says in such heartwarming terms, he looks at them, or he says to them, I am your companion in tribulation. I'm not sure that they had any clue as to the well-being of John the Beloved, the Apostle, because they're separated by miles of sea. And John, it says, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And this is the reason why this is so, so strategic and what I want to get across to you concerning having a, uh, an apocalyptic imagination is because on the mainland, they are experiencing unimaginable atrocities. Some of you heard, uh, I'm sure, preachers and teachers talk about what they were enduring. Some of the unbelievable and horrific things that they were doing to Christians in periods of persecution. How that they would take them to amphitheaters for sport. We don't really realize that most of our sporting events today started out far more barbaric than they are now because the whole idea of the Colosseum, the amphitheater, was to be entertained by watching people mutilated and dying unbelievable deaths. They were thrown to lions. They were tethered to animals, uh, to, to horses, and their limbs were pulled from their bodies. How many of you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul talks about love and he says, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Do you remember? That little statement is pregnant with meaning. When he said, though I give my body to be burned, what was he talking about? Well, see, he was making reference to something that was a common practice, especially under the reign of Nero. Nero decided that one of the things that he wanted to do to exact even more pain upon the Christian community was that he would take many of them and tether them to, or tie them to posts in his gardens and coat them with flammable material and set them on fires to light his gardens at night. The irony of the story is though is that Nero died as a result of going insane. And the reason why, according to history, that he went insane was because he did not get the result that he wanted whenever he would take these Christians and tie them to posts in his gardens, cover them with flammable material and set them on fire rather than screaming in terror and in pain, he heard them singing in a language that he had never heard before. The truth, ladies and gentlemen, is what he was hearing is these people as they were dying, they weren't screaming in agony and pain. They were singing in a language that was heavenly in origin. They were singing in other tongues and as a result, it drove him mad. I love the irony of that story. There are many more that we can talk about, but I must move on. So I want you to see again the context that John is on the Isle of Patmos and he doesn't fully know. He, he doesn't have the ability to, to know what is the state of all these churches that were so dear to his heart and neither do they know about what's going on with him. Do you get the picture? I hope that you're connecting some dots and realizing the relevance of this because in so many ways, we have been separated from one another. I mean, I'm not just talking about this, you know, this thing that we have to experience every day in terms of social distancing, but there's been a greater distancing that has been taking place. And the purpose of that is diabolical in nature to seek to divide. And I'm not talking about just dividing Christians. I'm talking about dividing humans. We're living in more of a polarizing time than I've ever seen in my 62 years of existence. I've never witnessed anything like it. There's, you know, it seems like the suspicion is airborne. It's everywhere, isn't it? Not only do we distrust the government, deep state, but we also distrust one another. It's something that is seeping into our very psyche, seeping into our very soul. 
And so John doesn't know about their condition. They don't know about John's. And he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, according to Revelation chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to you know, debate over what the implication of that is because some of my colleagues, you know, they go to great length in talking about what that implies, being in the spirit on the Lord's day. Other than I believe that every day is the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We so glibly sing in our charismatic culture. And in reality, you really only have now. I mean, even Einstein said that time is an illusion. And I know that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But the reason why that we are living so poorly right now is because we are suffering again from far too much future. And we don't have a perception of the present. The young lady saying earlier, be still and know. It's a definite sequence, isn't it? Be still and know. Being still now more than ever before is one of the most difficult things for us to experience. Silence is something that is almost maddening to us when we don't realize that before there ever was sound, there was silence. When you open the pages of Scripture, before God ever speaks and says, let there be light, prior to that, there was silence. And maybe we need to return somehow to silence. You know, the Buddhists say that we all suffer from what they call the monkey mind. It never shuts up, right? We're always thinking. We're always, we always have these voices. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, you know, when he's talking about the regulation of the gifts of the Spirit in, in, in the Christian community, he said that there are many voices in the world and none of them without signification. They have significance, don't they? And he says, how can you prepare for battle when a trumpet gives an uncertain sound? Well, see, John will even talk about this voice that you will hear. It sounds like a trumpet because trumpets, these, these are images that are, are rich in meaning going all the way back into the Old Testament. And the, the trumpets that were used in Numbers chapter 10 in particular were used for specific purposes when it was time to, for the encampment of Israel, this huge encampment of millions of people that was 15 miles across in both directions for them to move across the wilderness. When the glory cloud began to move, they, they would hear this distinct sound that came from a trumpet that indicated that it was time to move. When it was time to gather the elders, when it, there was an alarm, that there was a, a threatening in, in, enemy. There was a distinct sound that came from a trumpet. And the reason why I get off into that, I don't want to get too far into the, into the weeds about this, but see, there's, there's so much uncertainty right now, isn't there? And if we're really listening for a prophetic voice, because that's what a trumpet really is. You know, so, I, know I, I know this, I know my audience this morning, but so many of your brothers and sisters in the evangelical community, they're listening for the last trump. They're listening for the one that is going to indicate to them, to signal to them the evacuation. And I think that's the reason why they are not hearing a sound of certainty. Because they're tuned to the wrong thing. Completely tuned to the wrong thing. So, I think I've said, oh, by the way, before I get to Revelation chapter 4, my reading, I'm doing pretty good on time, it appears. <clears throat> before I get to my reading, uh, do you realize also something that was a real watershed moment had taken place when John is writing this 22 chapters, we refer to it in our arrangement of things, that the temple had been destroyed. Wait a minute. They're not going to go back to normal, Farmer. There's no more going back to the temple. Now, don't read into what I'm saying. I, you know, I believe in the value of the community. I believe, you know, in what we're doing right now, not just because it's what I do for part of what I do for a living, but I think that there's some of the expressions and some of the structures that we have 
felt like were irreplaceable, we need to realize that even though it was used by God at one time, that doesn't mean that it has permanence to it. So, so can you imagine how disorienting it is for the people of faith? Jerusalem has been decimated. The temple has been destroyed. So much of their religious history no longer exists. They're trying to find the new norm. You, you still with me so far? And in the midst of all this, this political prisoner, this man who is in exile, uh, I don't really think that it necessarily implies that he was, uh, and you can come to your own conclusions, I don't necessarily think that John was maybe up praying early one morning as the sun began to come up. I think that more, more than likely, it was more about him being ambushed. I think it came unexpectedly. That's just my opinion. You're entitled to yours. Uh, let me just say this. You know, most of the real epiphanies that I've had in my life that have, that have been watershed moments that have changed things forever for me, it had nothing, it had nothing to do with my intention. It had nothing to do with me saying, okay, I'm going to hear from God. Because I'm desperate to hear from God. No. I was just minding my own business. And all of a sudden, I was ambushed. There was a disruption. A total interruption to my life. God invaded what I considered to be reality. And showed me a greater reality. So in chapter 4... It says, and after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. I've already been down that road already, haven't I, as it relates to a trumpet. And he sees a door there, and see, to me, have, have, are you, have you ever heard the word liminal? Are you familiar with the word liminal? Some of you are responding positively. Well, now you get to add another word to your vocabulary. The word liminal is the Latin word that refers to precious, the word through which we get threshold. And when you talk about a threshold, obviously you stepped over one to come in and you step over one to come out, to go out. When you stepped over the threshold to come into this building, you came into a relatively confining space. When I step over that threshold out there at that door, I will go into unlimited space. Are you with me so far? And so I believe that with John, this was a liminal space. It was a threshold. We also use the word threshold too, don't we, to describe the, you know, what determines the limits of our pain. Some people have a greater threshold of pain than others. And all the women who have had several children would say amen. Right? Maybe what we're in right now, as with John, is that we're in a liminal space. We're in a threshold. It is not about the end of the line as much as it is. Everything is falling apart so something new can come together and we can step in out of this confining space into a more spacious place. Because that's exactly what he describes here. Because I just envisioned him standing on the shore there of Patmos, minding his own business, and all of a sudden he finds himself in another realm. He finds himself in the spirit. He does not find himself you know, uh, trying to find coverage from the, the, the hot Middle Eastern sun or, or maybe oh, looking over his shoulder, concerned that maybe one of the other inmates will come up behind him and stab him to death. I think that as he's standing there on the, on the shore of Patmos and he's looking across the sea, he is wondering, he's reminiscing, he's almost nostalgic, which by the way, nostalgia is not as good a word as you might think, because nostalgia always has the implication that you're wanting to go back to the good old days, to the glory days. It actually was a word that was, that was coined during the Civil War, and it was a condition, a diagnosis, an emotional condition or diagnosis that was made of many of the troops 
on both sides that had been gone from their families for so long and they were in the civil war that many of them, which is the case in most combatants, they don't really know what they're fighting for or why they're fighting. Especially when they look in the eyes of the person that's supposed to be their enemy and they see that they're just another human being that is probably just as misinformed as they are. So this nostalgia was this emotional state of mind that the, the, the soldiers in the Civil War were suffering from. And it was actually, listen now, it was debilitating to the point that the casualties were increasing, not because of their physical or military prowess, but because of the emotional state that they were in. So maybe we're nostalgic about the wrong thing. I'm not saying that we should honor the former days, but you can't live Because eventually you're going to kill you. And so he's standing there. Oh, I'm trying not to elaborate more than I have. He's standing there on the sea. He's looking out nostalgically and wondering, I wonder if they're okay. I wonder how many of them have died in persecution. How many of them have somehow been able to find refuge in the catacombs, living underground. He's wondering. Suddenly, the heavens roll apart like a scroll. It's a revelation. It's an apocalypse. I, I believe that what he sees is he's standing there and the heavens just unfold like a scroll. And he sees what he writes in Revelation chapter 1 through 22 like an, a cosmic opera that unfolds. And the cosmic opera that he sees unfolding is not about the end, but really about the beginning. All right. All right. Because this is, you know this, I don't have to convince you of this. I don't have to make a more compelling argument for you because I know this particular audience. You know that this last book of the Bible is not the revelation of the Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because he says so in the opening verses. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the unveiling, the disclosure, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Signified to his servant John. Then he goes on and he has the audacity to say, Blessed is he that reads, hears, and keeps the words of this prophecy. How audacious is that for him to write to these people that are in fear of their lives every day and say, if you read what has been given to me in this revelation, you'll be blessed if you read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. Beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it? I, I think probably one of the most unfortunate things about evangelical Christianity is that the book of Revelation has been veiled in so much ambiguity and so much mystery that people are convinced. In fact, I talk to people all the time. Oh, I don't read the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's too scary. Now, certainly there, there's some scary imagery in there, isn't there? But see, you have to see it from the perspective that John is getting ready to get here in Revelation chapter 4 because he saw this door that was open. And the door one was that it was in heaven. Which you and I know that heaven is not up there, out there somewhere. We know that heaven is more of a, a, a dimension than it is a direction. Right? No, isn't it way up there somewhere beyond the focus of the Hubble telescope? Oh, no, no, no. It never has been. We're time-space beings. That's, that's part of our problem because of our finite perspective. We're time-space beings, and we think of God as being up there, out there, but that's where the throne is, right? But if the angels of the Lord encamp round about them that fear Him, then that means that they are nearer than we are able to perceive Him. If the, if, the, if the Word of God would say that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy in the time of need, need, then I don't have to travel millions or billions of light years away to get before that throne. Heaven has always been closer than any of us have thought. It's always been in a dimension 
But did he say that he saw a door opened in heaven? You see, God has to speak to us in our finite perspective in terms of these dimensions, up and down, right, north and south, east and west, because that's what we're limited to. But there is a door that is being opened to him. And Jesus is always referring himself in so many different metaphors, isn't he? But one in particular that I like is he says, I am the door, which is laden with meaning. But I don't have time to unpack that. I am the door. Oh, make this practical. Okay, I'll do my best. Make this practical for you is, is to understand that when you get up in the morning and you walk out the door and you step over that threshold, I hope that somehow that you are reminded of this. When you step over that threshold that you have stepped over hundreds if not thousands of times, that you have the opportunity to step into the realm of his reality and not what you have been duped to believe is reality. Because of our conditioning and, uh, you know, the way that we have been taught to think when you think of a throne, you, you know, you, you think of something that is ornate in nature. You think of some huge, possibly a, a button-top chair, you know, that you remember those old chairs, you know, that is, that is overlaid, that is uh, lined with crushed velvet and, you know, has these ornate pedestals on it and it's, you know, that even takes you back to the throne of Solomon in the Old Testament. Boy, was it ever elaborate, wasn't it? But that's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking about that kind of throne. I believe what John is reaching for is because, see, again, the reason why that imagery is so important to us because of our, our cultural condition is that when we think of authority, are you still with me at all? When we think of authority, we, we, we have certain images in our mind, don't you? I mean, think about Washington, D.C. You have the Washington Memorial. You have a, the, the Lincoln Memorial. You have all of these iconic, big, massive, if you've ever been right to the Lincoln Memorial, you see this massive carving of a man sitting and that's what we think in terms of authority. That is the seat of authority or the huge columns that usually are made, they make up the architect, architecture of our government. That's not what he's talking about at all. Because that would sound too much like the Roman culture, wouldn't it? He's talking about a throne. Remember I said earlier, the scripture says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain what? When? To obtain mercy. When? In the time of need. There's never been a greater time or greater need for mercy than right now. Now, I'm not talking, don't misunderstand me, I'm not talking about us asking God for mercy because he is raining down judgment upon this, because all this stuff is going on right now. The smoking gun does not lead to God. But no. See, that's the problem with most of us. You know, we we have we have faulty evidence, and we're convinced that this, you know, this is the evidence of God's judgment. You see, God has evidence that is not necessarily evident to you. And he does not sit on the throne of judgment. He sits on the throne of mercy. Because he's always, he, his justice has never been retributive. Never! Pardon me for getting loud. But I think I've got to nail that down. This erroneous belief that God's sense of justice has always been retributive. It's never been retributive. It's always been restorative in nature. Yeah. He does not sit on this throne waiting for the opportunity where he is going to get even. God doesn't get even. He's not vindictive. 
it true that we become like the God that we believe in? That's what's wrong with evangelical Christianity right now because they are convinced that this is what God is like. That's the reason why we have such a culture war that is going on right now that is reactive in nature rather than thoughtful in nature. And reactive faith is not real faith. Reactive faith really proves our instability and our immaturity. It really proves that we don't understand the true character and the nature of God. Oh, I wish, I know I keep saying this, my apology, I wish that I had time to really talk about this in greater depth, but help me to understand how many of you believe that God has always been good and everything that God has ever made has been good? Can we get, can we get a consensus on that? Do you believe that God has always been good? He just didn't start being good when Jesus came along. He didn't just start forgiving when Jesus, oh, I'm going to forgive them because of the death of my son. Oh, no, God's never been unforgiving. The death of Jesus was just proof that he had always been forgiven. The death of Jesus was not some quid pro quo that, oh, now that my son has died, I can withdraw my wrath from them. What book have you been reading from? God started to sing with good intentions in Genesis chapter 1, and his ultimate intention is ultimate goodness. That's why I can believe in the middle. Because you can say all you want to, you believe in God, but that doesn't mean you trust. Because the devils believe. But now, our belief system is being challenged. And we're finding out that many of us, we just believed in what we believed in rather than believing God. Does that make sense to you? We've been handed a certain set of beliefs, and so we believe in what we believe in, and then suddenly when there's an earthquake, like we talked about earlier, and everything starts shaking, and the faultiness of it starts causing the walls to fall in, and the bottom to drop out from under us, then we begin to realize, do we really trust Wow, so he sees that throne in heaven, see, because... The, the first thing, you know what the first reference to of the throne of God was? Do you remember? Where was the throne of God? What did it look like? A throne. What did it look like? In the wilderness wanderings, remember when Moses was given the instruction to fabricate this mobile center where God would reside. A tabernacle, it's called a tabernacle. Moses really the tabernacle of God's, where God lived in the midst of them. Remember? And there was all these different types of furniture that are placed in the seven to be exact. But the one that was the most paramount was called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, remember, if you don't know anything about this from the biblical reference, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you've got some clue, right? This is the greatest of the last ark. Remember that classic movie? And because everybody wants that ark. Right? Even the Nazis wanted to remove it. They want that ark. It's this little three by four box. And it's overlaid with gold. And inside of it, there's a pot of manna. There's Aaron's rod. And there's a table of the law. The second giving of the table of the law. But on top of it, see, that's not, that's not the real focal point. On top of it was something called a mercy seat. And that mercy seat, had, it, was, it was something to behold, I'm sure. It had fashioned into the top of it golden cherubims that faced each other. And God said, I will meet with you between the wings of the cherubim. That's where I'll speak to you. That's essentially where my throne is. It weighed over 100 pounds, this solid gold seat or throne, should I say. It weighed over 100 pounds, and once a year, the priests would come in on a designated day called the Day of Atonement, and they would sprinkle it with blood. And that Old Testament economy, this was, their, this was where they had evolved in their consciousness to understand this is the only thing that keeps us free from the wrath of God. How many of you follow on that? I, I tried to convince it as much as I possibly could. 
But the Lord said, this is where my throne is. I will speak to you from between the wings of the cherubim. I will speak to you from the awareness and the focal point of atonement or at one Because the throne is always there about mercy. He goes on and talks about around the throne. He sees all these creatures that I, it's almost like he's broken for words to try to describe these creatures. He sees flashes of lightning. He sees flashes of lightning. Oh. He sees the seven spirits of God around the throne and a sea of glass like crystal. Man, if there's anything that that conjures up to me is the image of a sea of glass. In tumultuous times, just a plastic sea of glass because everything before his throne, and this is where we have to position ourselves in order to receive this apocalyptic imagination. Rather than looking from here, out there somewhere, we have to look from here down here because Ephesians said, and you were dead in trespasses and sin, happy, quickened, and made, has made, has made, to sit with him in heavenly places. Because when you sit there, then you see things in more of a placid way, don't you? And you begin to hear, as John hears, can you imagine what it was like for John when he finally steps over that threshold into that realm and all he could hear is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Man, that doesn't really need any commentary. It's worthy of it, but it doesn't need it. Maybe you say, man, you're talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Well, I, honestly, I think that where we are right now, that there's not a more appropriate word so that he can take us out of the culture's uh, hostage mentality and step into this consciousness to begin to see things as he sees it. Maybe that's the reason why sometimes we don't feel like he hears us is because he doesn't see what you see. But you want him to see what you see because you think what you see is the way it is. And this is what happens to John. See, I've returned to this several times. Go ahead and stay with me. I've returned to this several times in the last few weeks. And... Uh, I mean, I, I recognize that this book is filled with, you know, such, to, to us at least, 2,000 years later, it is filled with such bizarre imagery, right? What could be more bizarre than what we have gotten accustomed to just in the last few months? I don't know about you, but every time I walk in a store, I mean, it happens to me all the time. You know, I get out of the car, you know, and I think, oh, I didn't get my mask. And I go back and get the mask, and I'm walking around, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Is this not bizarre? Is this the new norm? Is this the reality? Or is it too much of a stretch to say that what I've been talking about here this morning is the real one? You know, I, I, uh, I think that probably what we ought to say here um, is open the eyes of my heart. know, in, uh, in Paul's eloquent way in Ephesians, it's probably, 
this morning to make this place. I ask that you would expand their imagination. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we're able to ask or think. There it is. According to the power of the works in us. Our problem right now is not the loss of the job. Our problem right now is not an imploding economy. Our problem right now is not racial unrest. Our problem right now, as far as I'm concerned, these are symptomatic political instability. Our problem right now relates to us not having an imagination of the future that you intended for us to have. Because love always wins. It never, 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 never fails. Economies fail. Economies fail. Empires fail. Politics of all kinds, Lord, they are destined to fail. But there's one thing that never fails, and that is love. And what you started, you will finish. What you started, you will finish. Say that. What you started, you will finish. I might finish it. What you started, you will finish it.